It's encouragement to remember this one thing. If there was ever a church that was messed up, it was the Corinthian church. And so we can always read this letter and be like, well, at least I'm not that. They had a lot of problems. Uh, After about halfway through the book, the letter really is nothing more than just a grocery list of problems that Paul's addressing. They had sexual morality. They were fighting over communion. Um, They were very... um, uh, sectarian, some were following different teachers, uh, their favorite uh, person. Uh, they were arrogant. Um, they had spiritual gifts and they thought they were something special. Uh, they had so many problems. And the very last of these problems, and as we get to the very end here in chapter 15, is this one problem in which they believed uh, they had a false type of teaching or heresy in which they believed that the resurrection was no more, that there was no need to hope in a resurrection. And it's here that we're going to find some of the clearest light in all of Scripture about the need to be resurrected because of Jesus Christ. Everything that this Easter represents. So here Paul takes it up with them. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The point will be that there is a living faith and there is a vain faith. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then he appeared to the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, He appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than them all. Who can say that? Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? (coughs) But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ from the dead, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, it's the worst thought of them all. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They have come to nothing. They are gone. 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who has put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now that latter part, you'll have to be there on Thursday to understand uh, that God would be all in all uh, is probably only the most debated verse in the New Testament. What exactly does that all mean? But the point at the beginning is very clear. It's very clear to the fact that Paul is pressing them. And my job this morning as a pastor sometimes is to comfort and sometimes is to make people uncomfortable. So my job in, in, in the theme with this is to press you as he's pressing them and say, do you understand what it means when we say Jesus Christ is alive? Well, if we're Christians, and that's what we say, Jesus is alive, because that's part of the doctrine of uh, the Christian gospel, yes. But there is a warning here that there could be a faith you have upon this truth that is actually vain, empty. And the scariest and the darkest and the deepest part of that whole passage is this part in which he says, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, if it is true that at this moment Jesus Christ is not alive, then they're gone. They've died. They're like grass that's been cut or a bush that's been trimmed, disconnected, withered. They've perished. So what we say here is to understand why Paul would write this, that Jesus Christ must be alive. If he is not alive, we have no hope. There is nothing more to look for. That this preaching, he says, is vain. And your faith is vain. It's the difference between a living and a dead faith. Today is Psalm, uh, Palm Sunday. And that's the day in which that Sunday that Jesus began to enter into Jerusalem. And as he entered Jerusalem from the outer edges, he told one of his disciples to go into the city and find a donkey tied with a colt to bring it to him. So he did. Like the scriptures say in Zechariah 9, he walked in to Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And as he did, all the crowds were before him and after him. And they were all shouting and cheering 
And some of them laid down their coats onto the ground for the donkey to walk on as Jesus Christ sat. And even some cut down branches from trees, palms, laid them on the ground for the donkey to walk on as Jesus Christ entered. And we call it the triumphal entry of him going into Jerusalem. This is one week, Sunday, before the next Sunday in which he will absolutely change the, change the fabric of reality. That in one week, the next Sunday, he will resurrect as a man, alive, forever, in glory. The appearance, if you were there, to see Jesus come into Jerusalem for the first time, would not look the way it appears. It would appear as though this is a Messiah figure that they are looking. They would say, Hosanna, son of David. Hosanna, son of David. Hosanna means, please save. Please save us. Of course. But he was going to save more than they ever anticipated. See, it's not just how he would save them from their oppressors. But he actually would save by subduing every rule and authority and power and dominion. And yes, even death itself. In the Jewish culture, the idea of putting palm branches down was a symbol of victory. It's a waving of a, of almost like, you know, if a soccer or a football team were to win and come home to their city, they wave the flag. Those palm branches is nothing more than almost the national flag of Israel at the time. That they would say, please save us. Please save us. 1 Corinthians 15, he says this. He must bring everything to an end. And deliver this kingdom over to God, his Father. After destroying every rule and every authority and every power, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Those feet that are walking across the palm branches. Those feet also have to tread upon death. And not just death, but every true, literal, physical power in this world. Every nation Every angel, every demon, Jesus Christ must put every rebellious molecule in this cosmos under his feet and make it submit to his lordship. And here they thought maybe we could just be free with these palm branches from Rome. Yes, but more than the Roman Empire, every empire, every dominion, every ruler, Every vain thought, Paul says to the Corinthians, must be taken captive for Christ. He will have no dark spot in his kingdom. Zion in Revelation falls like light, and there is no sun. For he himself beams with perfect light, casting out all darkness, and in that a resurrected body like yours and mine, but much different. That is the son of heaven. He must subdue it all. This is the gospel we believe. And Paul is beside himself. He says, I don't understand why you're saying there's no resurrection of the dead. Do you understand if that is not the case? None of this means anything. 
The gospel is not to help you have a better life. And it's not a social gospel to make better civilizations. We are all desperately corrupted and we die. And the assumption is that's not right. No matter what you might do in this world, if he is not alive, none of this matters at all. He says this particularly. I remind you, I remind you, brothers, this is the gospel I preach to you, the actual good news. And if it's not this, it's in vain. Now you receive this, and he says, I want you to stand. That is, you received it, you believed it, you have faith in it, you understand the gospel. Why are you turning away? Why are you philosophizing this? Why are you turning into an abstract worldview system? It's more than that. It's a body you can pinch. A man who was actually translated into a different realm of existence. And if that is not the case, then why don't we just sit there with the philosophers in Athens and make up wives' tales, and if we can be more persuasive, maybe we can have a philosophy for life. But there is no life, because there's death. And if there's no victory over death, what does it all matter? He's going to go on and later quote the Epicureans to say, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It doesn't matter. If this is not true, nothing matters. But they do have faith. He says you've received this. But see, there's different types of faith. See, Jesus always likened faith to like plants. Of course, it's Easter, which means it's spring. It's beautiful today, even now. Looking through the windows, you can start to see the budding of plants. And he always likened it. <coughs> this is a famous uh, favorite phrase or analogy for Jesus. He speaks of, of course, a tree that is alive has to produce fruit, and a dead tree cannot produce live fruit, and neither could a live tree produce dead fruit. Matthew 7, he goes on in Matthew 13 to say, faith is like soil of our souls. See, you can have soil that receives the seed, and it grows. You, you have faith. Or you can have a, a soul that is like soil that's rocky, and it's concerned with all the trials of this life, and it has no living faith, at least, or a, a soil that is riddled with thorns and thistles, and when the gospel comes, it's, it's scorched out because you want the best for your life now. You want riches and wealth. That's not a living faith. And the thing I always notice is preaching about this idea of living faith. You have living faith. It can become quite besettling because you're saying, I mean, I think I do. I know I could do better. I know I could trust Christ more. I think I have faith in my life. But see, there's one more image I'd love to give you about how this idea of a plant or an agrarian illustration of faith is like a plant or a growing living thing, living faith. I love this one. I've been reading a book called The Bruise Reed by Richard Sibbs. It's a Puritan from years ago. It's beautiful. It's the heart of God for you. So you might say, well, maybe my soil isn't that great. Maybe all the fruit on my life isn't that wonderful. Maybe my life isn't that living. Maybe my faith isn't very alive. If you're being honest, we all know that. But there's also this image for reeds. A bruised reed he will not cast out. Do you sometimes think maybe that's more your life? That you're a bruised reed? 
that your faith is living. I trust in Christ, but I'm broken. I'm weak. I fail. A bruised reed, he will not cast out. Isaiah 42, it says this. Look, the prophet sees an image of the Messiah. My servant, my chosen one, the one in whom I put my spirit upon. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. It's not so much that you are trusting. It's much, much more of who you're trusting. There's a reason Jesus describes his resurrection as being a first fruit, a first growth of a new season, a new time, a new age has dawned for humanity. All of creation points to these images. You go through winter where nothing is alive. But Jesus sprouts up. A man is killed and comes back. There is green on the branch. Just a glimmer of a sight of it. It's just one soul. It's one man. But that's the image of Jesus Christ or Messiah. The name of the church is new life. One of the images of the logo is this small little branch that comes out and grows. It's all the beginning of if spring were this new age, that is where we go into the kingdom. That there is a first growth of a new humanity all predicated on Jesus Christ's resurrection. The Corinthians do not understand this. They are in this persuasion that there really is no resurrection. It's all spiritual or it's all some type of metaphorical poetry. Paul pauses them and says, stop. I did not get whipped by the Jews and chased by the Romans for poetry. If Jesus is not alive, this means nothing. To trust in the resurrection, that is, a living faith, requires a living Christ. The resurrection is absolutely, absolutely necessity. So we'll see as he lays this case to him in three parts. It's this, to know the charge. Do you have a living faith in Christ? Can you understand what it means when we say Jesus is alive? It has to be creedal. It has to be active. And it has to be connected or covenantal. This is how he approaches the Corinthians. He says it in these three areas in which he says, no, 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 you're wrong. You need to understand the creed. You need to actually live this thing, be active in your faith. And then as a result, the most important of it all, you see the connectedness of you to Christ. That is, you are covenantally bound in a way that is even more substantial than all the laws of physics or gravity or however God holds all this world together. Even more than that, he has held you next to Christ through faith. That if you can see those three, you understand yourself to actually have a true and living faith. So look what he says about this creed. He says, I delivered to you of first importance. First importance, what I received. Now the word there, he delivered, and received. These are words that are closely connected to the word for tradition. 
tradition. See, Paul received something. He had the appearance of Jesus, and he was a true apostle, but he also received this, the synthesis of the scriptures. Not everybody who can have a Bible can ultimately say, I understand what this is all about. No. There is an apostolic tradition in which the scriptures are appropriately interpreted. And to be outside of that tradition, which Paul received and then delivered to the Corinthians, is to actually be in heresy. And heresy is not just something you say when someone disagrees with you. Heresy means death, no life. Your faith is vain. You've not trusted in Christ. You say all the right words, but you're the Mormons. You say all the same things, but they're Jehovah Witnesses. You worship Mary. You kiss idols and icons. You do not understand the apostolic tradition, which for Paul was synthesizing all of Scripture. He says it this way. The word for tradition is paradosis. The word for deliver, he says here, I delivered to you paradidomi. The word for received, paralambano. Do you see? The whole idea of tradition, which is tradition delivered and received, Paul is saying this is apostolic. If you cannot hold to this, I don't care how you quote the scriptures or mangle the scriptures, you don't actually trust in Christ. You don't know the one true Christ. You've stepped outside. And this is how he forms it. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. On the third day, he rose again and he appeared. Doesn't that sound on communion? We quote what? We read the Apostles' Creed sometimes? Yes. It's the very beginning of the old creed of the church. That Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried. All these images come together, and they have to be held in truth. That there is a tradition that we understand is connected to the scriptures. See what he says? In accordance with the scriptures. In accordance with the scriptures, Christ died for our sins. In accordance with the scriptures, he rose on the third day. There is not some idea of tradition that actually hovers over here in which we say, there's a really long lineage of all these men who wore robes and they still wear pointy hats today and they have a tradition. That's fine. But if it's not according with the scriptures, it doesn't matter. See, Paul's idea of tradition is that he rose in accordance with the scriptures, that is, with the apostolic testimony of the ancient oracles of prophetic inspired texts. That's all connected. To say, if this is foreign, if this way of thinking is foreign, then that understanding of your faith could potentially be absolutely vain. That's your saying. How detailed can you go with what it is that this gospel is? Do you push yourself to know the creed? That is, if the rigidity and the rigorous study of theology produces rigor mortis, right? that's not a living faith. Not saying just to study theology so you can study theology. But there is a way to know the creeds, to know the theology, so that it actually has life. And if you don't have that, there is a place in which Paul is saying, then you don't have life. There is no living faith. 
You don't know what you mean when you say Jesus. You don't know what you mean when you say all these terms. Be challenged to push yourself to grow, to grow in this knowledge. He outlines it this way. This is the old creed that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That is, Jesus' death, we can say, is the teaching of the scriptures. But what does it mean that he died? For our sins. Not to make a better world. Not to give us a moral example. Not to show us how we should be nice and pick up our crosses. And that how should we help poor people and do all these things? Of course we should. But God did not incarnate himself so that we could know the moral things that we already know to do that we don't do. He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That is, this is real. One of the first ancient heresies of the church in the first century was docetism. Just saying, it only appeared. Um, spiritual apparitions or Impressions upon the mind that Jesus rose from the dead. It wasn't real. It was a spiritual experience. It was a transcendental experience. Uh, someone was eating mushrooms. I mean, that's what people like doing that a lot today. You know, eat, eat mushrooms and have a trip. Um, well, the ancient world was the same. It's not like we're just Joe Rogan didn't figure that out. Um, you know, so like, think about this. He's saying the body went in the tomb. This is real. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Remember Jesus said, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days in accordance with the scriptures. Isn't that amazing? Because that whole thing was not about Jesus explicitly. It's showing you the whole theme of Old Testament prophecy is pointing you to Christ. That even down to Jonah being in the belly of the fish. Of course that's about Jesus, Jesus would say. Can't you see? There's a whole other level of how he was understanding. All the words were for him. And then he's appeared, of course, to Cephas, the twelve. And then the five hundred. That is, at one time. That is, not individual spiritual experiences or metaphysical visions. But an objective Reality in which 500 people had the same exact phenomena appear before them. That there was the resurrected Christ standing there sinless, spotless, and alive and breathing the same air as them. He appeared. He's alive. And Paul pauses all of this to say, if you cannot hold this apostolic tradition, if you cannot understand this handed down that was received to me, then you do not have faith in Christ. You take the scriptures and you twist them to your own destruction. He said this is actually of first importance for living faith. Is that it would be and it was required that it be in a living Christ. The second part, he says, how do you know you have a living faith? Look at Paul's life. Now, this is particularly convicting if you, if you consider yourself and you say, do I believe this? That Jesus Christ is alive and I with him. It will tell tomorrow when you wake up and go to work. It's that real. It's that active. It's that practical. A living faith is an act of faith. Look at his words. He says, now. He's appeared to Cephas, the 12, 500, James. He appeared to the other apostles. Then he appeared to me. 
know he's alive. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Can you say this? By the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me did not prove vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all the other apostles. That's arrogant. I worked harder than all of them. But it's not pride. It's true piety. That is, he is trusting in Christ. He knows that he's alive. And because Jesus Christ is alive, he toiled himself to death. If you believe that Jesus is alive and your real life is with him, then you live very differently. I worked harder than all of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether it was I or they, we preached and you believed. That is, I have exhausted myself as an old man for this one fact that Jesus Christ is alive and I will work myself to death. See, it's always, it's always the lie. Preserve yourself. When I, this is always the dangerous, I didn't meditate on this fact at all. It's literally a thought that popped in my brain right now. There was a time I hung out with a lot of first century Russians, first, first generation Russians. Not first, I don't have a time machine. First generation Russians in Pittsburgh. And I loved hanging out with them. They were a little closed off and weird in some ways, but I loved it because they weren't Americans. I just liked it. The way the women acted and the way the men acted. and Like, they just worked hard. A lot of them grew up under Soviet Russia. They, one of them grew up with, with dirt floors. Like, that's, that was his childhood. I walked in dirt floors in my kitchen. Right? So when they came to America, like, the way they did things, the way they said things, they know that life can be hard. And see, that's the thing that drives me nuts. Is the lie is preserve yourself. Sustain yourself. Retain yourself. Try to get a better life. Try not to enter too hard into difficult things. Don't overcommit yourself. Don't push yourself or stress yourself. Take time for yourself. Don't don't overdo it. Who said you shouldn't? Is he not alive? Could he not be good on his promises? Paul worked himself to death. Why would you do that if everything was now and here? If everything was now and here, then you better try to preserve it. You better try to extend it. You better try to enjoy it. But what if he's alive and you're alive with him and he will resurrect you on that day and give you crowns of glory for all the toil that you did for him in this life? What if you should be rewarded for your labors in Christ? What if you were meant to die? What if Jesus didn't preserve his life? What if he went down to Jerusalem? What if he resisted all temptations to be crowned as king prematurely? What if it was his purpose to suffer and take up his cross? 
What if it was his purpose to work? How heavy is the cross that bears all the sins of the world? What is a Monday to us? Should we not labor and toil for him? Do you see Paul's thinking here? I've worked harder. But it's not an arrogant statement at all. Jesus is alive. Colossians 1.29, he says, For though I toil, struggling with all his energy, that powerfully works within me. All his toils, wake up. When you go to work tomorrow, when you raise your kids tomorrow, when you cut the grass tomorrow, when you empty the dishwasher tomorrow, Lord, work through me. Lord, give me the energy down to the fingertips of my toils that it would be for you, that I would work for your glory, that I would work for your name, that I would not build my own kingdom. Of course, you can find workaholics, but what are they building? Their kingdom, their house, their pension. They're building something for themselves, and that drives them to work. And it's all very good to work hard for money. But if you miss that step, that there is a man who is alive for you, and his name is Jesus, and he has entered into his kingdom of eternal glory, and that if you were toil for him and his kingdom, oh, it will not burn up. It will be only refined by fire into gold and be gems of rewards for the labors you've given to the kingdom that is to come. For everything in this kingdom, everything that is visible is not eternal, but is what is unseen that is eternal, Paul says. Work for what is unseen. Work for the jewels that last. Work for the crowns that meet you in the after. Why? If you work this way, it's because you actually believe that Jesus is alive. And everything matters. That kingdom that he inherited, he will give it to his father. And if all your labors and toils are wrapped up into that, you better believe you will receive a wonderful reward. The most beautiful of all these points and how you know you have a living faith in Christ and coming to an end to see connectedness in a covenant. This is how a living faith must trust in a living Christ. And if Christ is not alive Paul's promise to us is your faith is dead. Is dead as a door now. He reasons this way. First from us to Christ. He says, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how do some of you actually say there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised from the dead. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised for, from the dead. When you pause on that, it's beautiful. In principle, he says to the Corinthians, if you think it is impossible for humanity to be raised to resurrection, then Jesus has not been raised to resurrection. And you could say, well, no, Jesus, you see, was special. He was the Messiah. Uh, he was uh, the Son of God. He was God incarnate. Maybe Jesus resurrected, but we could not be resurrected, is the Corinthians' argument. And Paul reverses to say, no, 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 you see. Jesus is humanity. If it is possible, in principle, that humanity cannot be resurrected, you must understand that Jesus, in his humanity, is so intimately connected to you, 
That if it is not true of you, it could not be true of him. That he has humbled himself so low that his very human nature was a very human nature. Truly God and truly man. Verily, verily man. And if man cannot rise, then even incarnate God in his human nature would not rise. He has taken on a true human nature. That's the connectedness. To see that you are so connected to Christ that your very future rests in him and that the very logical possibility of his present condition rests in how you see yourself. That is it not possible that God can bring back a human nature to be a resurrected, reconstituted, full of potential human nature? Is it not true that our life is, 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 is so short of all the potentialities that exist? That you are 20, then you are 30, then you are 40, then you are 50. All the things you want as you move on, you actualize yourself when you think I might do this and I might do that, but the clock is ticking and you only will, at the end of your life, have such a limited opportunity to do certain things. Doesn't it just almost sting, like Paul would say, the sting of death? Don't you have more energy? Doesn't God, in Ecclesiastes said, he's written eternity into our hearts. Doesn't it feel as though you should be doing more? Doesn't the new decade turn over on your birthday kind of, riddle you with a fear of angst that it is almost over and there's so much more and though you look older in the mirror you still feel young in your soul that you have more you would like to do jesus christ is alive today that feeling you have is true you will do more because his human nature truly is alive but the most beautiful of all is that paul reasons the other direction as well not only does he reason from us to Jesus, that therefore, if there was no resurrection for the dead, then therefore Christ could not have been raised. It also works the other direction. He reasons from Jesus to us. If, if Christ is proclaimed to be risen from the dead, it's not possible for you to say there is no resurrection for you. Intimately connected. That if it is true there for him in heaven, it has to be true for you on earth. The most natural way to think about this is right now in the spring. He says, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and he is the first fruits of the first fruits of all those who arise with him. If you look on a bush today, as you enjoy this beautiful Sunday the Lord has given you, and if you see a shrub that is even budding a little bit of green, it is impossible that more green will not come. The covenantal connection of you trusting in Christ is more substantial than the sap that is right now in this season in the year traveling north on the branches and bringing life back out from the waters of the soil. That if Jesus Christ is the first fruit, that if he has risen to the heavens, that he is the tip of the branch and he is beaming with life eternal, he is green in the midst of a dark and dingy winter. Paul promises that if there is life up there, we only are the filling up of the rest of those first fruits. 
We only are coming alive again at the general resurrection to fill out the tree of life, which is all of our branches and our family trees and our children and all who are far off and your household. And as Paul says in Pentecost, and all who are called upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For he is alive and your faith with him is a living faith. That is the organic connection cannot be broken as we profess Christ alive this Easter. Dear Father God, we are alive for you are alive. For you are delivered over, Lord, for our trespasses. But Lord, you were raised for our justification. You were raised for our justification. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we ask that you would give us life this Easter in increasing measure, knowing that we are only going to live more and more as we know you more and more, for you are life. And we have beheld your glory in your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.